0: Welcome to the Addendum Podcast. Today, we have Professor Yan from Marianopolis College. Professor Yan, could you please
1: introduce yourself?
2: Uh, Yes, my name is Yan Su. I teach sociology and I also teach research methods at Marianopolis. This is actually my fourth year here.
0: Like you said, you offer a course called Food and Social Justice. Could you tell me what is it about?
2: You know, I I spent quite a lot of time to think about food. It all started with something very personal because I have like close family members who got cancer. It doesn't mean that, you know, it's because they ate bad food or anything like that. But somehow when the discussion came up in terms of maybe the cause and the, or Later on, in terms of the treatment and lifestyle and food is always there. It's always an issue.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So yeah, actually started with something very personal. Then I, and then I have been writing, um, articles, not necessarily academic articles about food security or insecurity. Mm-hmm. And uh, that really made me think a lot more about food. So when I get a chance to open a course like uh, food and social justice, I just grab it because I think <laughs> it's actually a very important topic for, for students to understand, especially if you think about how food is actually something so intimate, right? Mm-hmm. We think about it. We crave for it. We build our identity around it. We have social mm-hmm sort of in and out of food meals and eating um it's something so personal so social yet at the same time it's deeply sort of it's a deep question it's a big question uh when it comes to social structure and social justice mm. so
0: in terms of social justice i understand that food is something very intimate but one would also argue that like Fashion, the way that we dress ourselves nowadays, is also such a core part of our identity. So, what made you pick food over something like fashion?
2: Um, just look at me. Do I look like somebody who fashionable? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, you know, in a way that I don't think our these days we 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 pretty much wear our our clothes as much as wear our food. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, I look at my students' photo essays. Uh, lots of them would tell me, you know, I, you know, I'm showing this photo essay in order to explain certain concepts. A uh, lot about it. Uh, it's about how it they identify themselves with the food they consume or the eating habits. It's not just about their social class or race and ethnicity. Uh, it goes into a questions of body image. Uh, mm-hmm. it goes into a question of, you know, let's say fat shaming.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, it's, it's very, it's, oh, if lots of students will show me their, the food porn, they, they posted online social media as if that's the way people wear their food. The food becomes something so fashionable. Of course, it goes hand in hand with the rise of social media because I, I've often said that Back like before any single social media, who would take a photo or multiple photos before the consumption itself and then print it and, you know, print the real copy and post it on bulletin? Nobody would ever do that. Mm-hmm. And sort of clothes and fashion and food, they give out a lot of signals about a person's identity. And I thought you used fashion. It's actually quite quite a good way, sort of a comparison there.
0: Thank you. So, why do you think it's so important to learn more about food?
2: As I said, um, it's very intimate, right? We eat it all the time. But at the same time, it touches upon every single aspect of our social life. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, it's not just about, you know, the way you eat, or the person you eat with, or the surrounding you eat. It also uh, comes to the question of food system. Where's the food from? How is it produced? Uh, and it involves, you know, the question of industrialization, uh, questions of global economy, and then a question of market values mm-hmm. this contrast between let's say consumer think wow we we get to choose this and it's sort of a declaration of my freedom or my independence or you know my free will of choosing this food or that food but then at the same time we have all these paradoxes showing that you know what the food displaced in a supermarket is actually carefully cal- calculated and designed by let's say, capitalists.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So, and then to what extent we think we have the so-called consumer sovereignty. Uh, in fact, um, it's constantly challenged by by the market, by the force of mm-hmm. capital. And then I think food system, students need to understand that food system is, it actually manifests how capitalist society functions. Okay. And that automatically points to the question of justice or uh, social inequality. And I think it's important for students to understand this sort of larger sociological issues with mm-hmm. something so mundane, just the food or eating itself. It seems
0: like food reveals a lot about our own society, our own identity also. So to you, Just from looking at a food, which aspect would be the most apparent? Like,
2: what does it reveal most about the person consuming it? It's really about that person's identity, who they are. It's not so much about uh, I am what I eat. I mean, we have this discussion or even debate, and some students disagree, but at the same time, the more I think about it, the food we consume tells a lot about who we are
1: mm-hmm.
2: uh, and so forth individuality. At the same time, it's more about our social positions. Mm-hmm. It could be race, it could be ethnicity, it could be some something about culture, it could be about social class, so on and so forth. Food, at that level, it tells a lot about who we are. At the same time, it tells a lot about what we don't know of or we are not aware of. You know, last semester, we talked about a film, Black Gold, about coffee, right? Mundane mm-hmm. drinks in our everyday life. But then we kind of trace it back to, what, Ethiopia? And the, all the way to to North American market and see how the price of coffee is actually determined by, you know, uh, investors under the New York and students wouldn't understand what's underneath this sort of surface of consuming coffee. And I thought it's, it, it would be interesting to use something so familiar to point to something we are totally unaware of. And in a way, it's what sociology calls the sociological imagination. We really try to see something we don't see underneath um, sort of the surface.
1: You talked about
0: how food is revealing of our ethnicity and our social position. One of the most famous ways, I think, or most well-known ways that immigrants try to integrate into society is by opening a restaurant. What do you think about this method of using food or, well, more like exotic food as a way to try and earn, like, recognition and then integrate into society?
2: I don't know if it's really trying to earn recognition. I think it's just very first and foremost, it's an economic means, right? People have Mm -hmm. to pay their bills, so they open up the restaurants. And for people, let's say people who are immigrants um there's a lots of obstacles uh cultural linguistic barriers or um you know certificate um that you know some kind of educational certificate that might not work uh <laughs> in the Canadian society or American society, so you don't really need a piece of professional paper to prove what you were before, but you could definitely open a restaurant right but that's not mm-hmm. it's not that simple now. I don't even know if everybody can cook
1: mm-hmm.
2: uh, it's something you kind of have to develop right so there's so many different aspects of of running a a restaurant, let alone a successful restaurant so mm-hmm. I would say it's really about you know growing your roots and put down your roots for immigrants and restaurants um, is one of a, a more common ways, especially in the past, immigrants to to sort of say to claim their, their own spots in this society. With this
0: claiming of a spot in society, because they are technically outsiders coming into this already established society how do you think they kind of change themselves or if they even change themselves in order to fit into this new place
2: you mean the immigrants or the restaurant uh, immigrant restaurant owners yeah okay um I guess there are many different ways they have to do it. And one of the ways I've been exploring is uh, what I call they they adopt different cultural sh- strategies. A cultural strategy is really you try to have you have both sort of measures. One is you try to be exotic, right, mm-hmm. or you try to be, you know, ethnic. Mm-hmm. And the other one is try to fit into the mainstream that has already been here and it has to be the dominant. So in one word, I coined it as, well, two words, I coined it as, how do I call this? Palatable exoticism. So on one hand, I think if you go to any kind of ethnic restaurants, you will find things palatable, especially mm-hmm. as it somehow has to be palatable to to the mainstream consumers.
1: Mm-hmm. And at the same time,
2: it has to be a little bit different. It has mm-hmm. to be a little bit exotic or a little bit ethnic. And both elements, both cultural strategies combined together. It's a sort of a way to establish themselves and to grow their roots in, in a community, I think. And I pretty much talk about this because I, I did a research in Boston. Uh, this is the restaurant just north of Boston in this uh, white community. So it's like 90% of the, the residents in that suburb is uh, white, 90%. But then there's this Chinese restaurant that has been there for like, now it's probably 60, 60 years. This Whoa. year, 61 years. One generation, actually this is second generation, wrong isn't it. But the owner is still there. And he started, Richard, he started when he was very young, like 21 years old. Mm-hmm. Because at Ashes, it's my, my cousin's restaurants, for right? Richard's
1: oh.
2: husband. So I have this pretty much easy access to, to, to learn about how a restaurant works, right? Because I was really puzzled. You think about a business running more than 50, 60 years. That's rare, right? Especially mm. in society. And it's not your sort of a hole in the wall kind of Chinese restaurant. It's very, it's very elaborated. It's actually quite, it's well decorated. It has tastes. Um, it's very close to any kind of fine dining restaurant you can find, uh, mm. it's, you know, in, in other kinds of cuisine. But my question, when I started, I was really asking the question, why, how is that possible a restaurant like that could sort of grow its roots in a wide community for all these years. almost well, it's now six decades. That was really, I was really just intrigued. So then anyhow, I spent time there and I analyzed the material. I ate lots of Chinese food and this family, well, my cousin's family, they are very gracious and let me have all access to to the kitchen. So I, I get to know, go the life behind the so-called backstage. Um, I think a sociologist, Goffman, Herman Bach, Goffman has this idea of front stage and and backstage. So I have this sort of free access to, to the backstage just to, you know, to, to observe, to chat with the, the chefs, the sous chefs, you know, Mm -hmm. to, to observe how they work. And, um, that was a very, very good experience, and I think another way to think about it is that it is rare, very, very rare for any kind of researcher who has the opportunity to spend all this time in in the kitchen, pretty much, uh, in
1: mm-hmm.
2: ethnic restaurant. Really points to, I mean, I started with the question that, you know, how is it possible they can survive five, six decades here in mm-hmm. white community? But then it kind of branches out to, yeah, I and mean, one of the things they use is really the so-called um palatable exoticism. Mm-hmm. Right. So there's two benchmarks they have to hit. One is to be American, the other is to be Chinese. In other words, one is to be uh palatable, the other is to be exotic. And mm-hmm. they have quite a keep both brand- benchmarks in order to claim their spots.
0: You did talk about, like, palatable exoticism, so I do wonder whether, like, being new immigrants from Taiwan, I believe, Mm -hmm. like, did he, or well, did his father struggle to come up with, to come up with a menu that was specific to the Americans, or?
2: Yeah. Yeah, no, actually, they, my cousin, it's from Taiwan but the husband Richard wasn't. He was uh-huh. from originally from China and then he went to Hong Kong. Oh, I see. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. So he was the so-called paper son. So anyway, he, he got a document uh from somebody else mm-hmm. claimed that he's 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 the son of that person and then he entered uh, uh the states sixty something years ago, right? and but then his father was also there working in a restaurant so he he actually learned a lot about american chinese food by then Mm -hmm. so he did create certain menus but at the same time if you look at the menu items you recognize they are all pretty common uh in uh, american uh, chinese restaurants at the time Mm -hmm. or even nowadays
1: yeah Mm -hmm.
0: Could you give us an example of one of these um, palatably exotic foods? I
2: would say general Tao chicken is a very obvious one. I mean, mm-hmm. in, in Montreal, in Canada, we usually call it general Tao chicken, right? Mm-hmm. But in the States, it could be general Tao chicken. And in China, Blossom, it's called general draw chicken, right? Mm-hmm. So... It's actually pretty much the same thing you kind of bread chicken and it's kind of sweet and sour and dip-fry it and then it just it really caters to um the palates on both sides mm-hmm. so it's easily accept- acceptable so mm-hmm. it speaks to the mainstream while well, the so-called white American pellets Mm-hmm. At the same time, you have the name as General Tao Chicken or General Chow Chicken or General Zhuo Chicken, whatever it is. Um, these are things somehow are exotic. It's actually, if you think about it, I think there's a documentary about this. Uh, it's an invention in the 70s it, from a, a chef uh, who came from Taiwan and he, he opened a restaurant in New York and then he started General Tao Chicken. Wow. That's how that's the kind of the so called if you want to trace the origin of the food, right? Mm-hmm. So it's not something that uh he cooked it in Taiwan and then he bought it over, introduced to the, the public. It's really he kind of observed it, uh, observed the need of the mainstream, um, sort of needs or consumption needs mm-hmm. and then created this dish. And now uh, it's probably the most popular Chinese American dish or Chinese dish you can find. In North America. But if you go to places like China, you probably have a hard time to find a so-called General chicken. <laughs> and in Taiwan, I would go to that restaurant, like where this chef was uh, created. It He still have a branch there. I mean, uh, uh two, three branches there it was, was, was very good. But for us, we don't really think about it as, uh, palatable exoticism, right? <laughs> It's a, it's a very different social context for, for Taiwanese to consume that dish. For Americans, that creation of the dish is very, very significant. If you think about the meaning behind it, the meaning mm-hmm. that you have to be palatable, but at the same time, it's somehow different and exotic. Something called, I think in Boss now they have this, this other dish. Well, I wouldn't say it's a dish. It's more like, um, Snack or entree. So mm-hmm. it's uh, called crab rangoon. Oh. I don't think we have that in Montreal Chinese restaurants. Basically, it's deep fried bread, breaded uh, sour cream. Huh? And that's number one snack they sell in China, Boston So it's cheese. And if you think about Asian populations, cheese is not really something. Yeah. They consume, right? Mm-hmm. But that's number one. That's the most important thing they sell. Or if you think about the drinks, they sell, uh, the cocktail is called Mai Tai and mm-hmm. they sell mo- more Mai Tai than soft drinks in China Blossom. Mm. Oh. That's how popular it is. So what is Mai Tai? It's the so-called Polynesian drinks. It's also sweet and sour. And, um, but what is Polynesian dream? It's also kind of created uh, in California. Actually, it was created by some, I think it's by uh, Caucasians, but because mm-hmm. it was kind of, it became very popular in the 50s when Hawaii was, became, became the uh, 51st state of the United States, or something like that. And it became popular and then it's kind of, They say it's Polynesian. It's, there's this paradise and you imagine coconut trees and pineapple drink or coconut drinking from that shelf. And then you have this sort of imaginary paradise and you can temporarily escape from your everyday life. Mm -hmm. And for me, that's another sort of example to describe what palatable exaltism means. But if you go to places like I don't know, Hawaii, maybe Hawaii by now, but you go to places like, I don't know, um, Polynesian, uh, islands, you don't necessarily have that, right? So it's a lot of cultural invention and creation based on the cultural strategies of, um, palatable exaltivism that actually at the same time creates a sense of authenticity. Mm-hmm. You see, it, they will claim that it's the original of something, something. Mm. It doesn't really matter if it's, re- if it's really from that place or not anymore. But So authenticity here is really bridged between uh, the client's expectation and the owner or restaurant, mm-hmm. whatever they try to convince. If that bridge is kind of well-connected, it's authentic.
0: So it seems like these palatable exotic foods are kind of n- not really of one culture, nor is it really of another culture. And I think that's what a lot of, especially second generation immigrants would feel, or like even um, children who move over to like another country when they're super young, they're born in one country and they do still hold onto that identity. But when they grow up, it's a really different culture. So how do you think like these foods kind of change the idea of authenticity? And like, what makes something
2: real? I would say whatever convinces you as real, then it's real. That's at a very basic level. The second way I consider whatever is real is Whatever allows you to put down your roots and to claim your your belonging that is real, so that that reality or something that's true, authentic, you don't necessarily need to travel all the way uh, elsewhere, origin or motherland. For me, I I really believe that authenticity. We have kind of to move forward from. From the sort of stereotypical understanding of authenticity that it's going back to the origin. You know, in, I don't know, mm-hmm. China, we never have this. So this is not authentic. Or in Vietnam, we never eat this. So this is not authentic. I, I question that idea because authenticity is really about whether it's convincing for the peop, for the people here and now at the same time, whether it, it allows you to, to claim your belonging. That would be authenticity
0: for me. That's very interesting because I know that there are people who place that emphasis on the dash between two identities because it shows that they're not really, they're kind of on the fence, but it's also like a merging of identities that creates a new one. So I can, I mean, I see traces of that concept in like um, palatably exotic
2: foods also. Yeah, it's sort of like you're both, but you're you're not really full member of this. You're not a full member of that, right? If you look mm-hmm. at the, the the second generation restaurant owners, there, uh, they are they were born in in the states, and they speak fluent English, and they were American educated educated and but at the same time they could never really fully claim they are Americans there's this paradox and it's very sort of sometimes it gets emotional for them because Mm -hmm. they are not um, they don't gain that full recognition but if they it's like China or Taiwan they cannot gain full recognition neither because they don't really speak the language. Their mannerisms, different. Their values and also very different. If they claim their identity as Chinese American, and I think the emphasis is really under is really that hyphen, right? Mm-hmm. Have hyphen that comes, hyphenated identity, and that is closely related to palaver uh, exaltism. That's for sure and they know that very well so mm-hmm. they they can use they can mobilize that, that culture strategy to uh to run a restaurant very well i think even for the first generation they don't know that strategy if you think about the history of chinese restaurants in north america uh it has always been like this like you, you have to sell something kind of imaginarily exotic at the same time it's simply just mainstream I
0: think it's a really interesting topic to approach because in a world that's, like, globalizing and you're kind of just losing touch and everyone's talking about, like, oh, this is not authentic, oh, that's not authentic. They're kind of saying, oh, the globalization is, like, messing up your roots, you're not really this, you're not really that. But then, like, it's a person's identity. We can't really deny them of these things. And it's also interesting that there's... um. A kind of paradoxical effect of societies claiming to be multicultural, also. They're trying to embrace everybody together. But I think that with the concept of palatable exoticism, where you have this like tension between trying to retain onto like your roots, but also kind of changing, like, are we actually really multicultural or are we kind of just slowly conforming
2: into like the dominant culture? I think this is a rather complex question. It's not really a either or or neither nor
1: mm-hmm.
2: sort of you can't fully claim one uh, or the other. It's like you have both of them. And but what does that say about multiculturalism though? Um well, I I have stronger t- critique of multiculturalism because I I am critical of multi- multiculturalism as some kind of token tokenism.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And I am also critical of multi- multiculturalism that is not really rooted in immigrants lived experience. I think that that could be problematic as, for example, culture can be appropriated for one thing or the other. And you lose the, the, the deeper significance or historical context of, of the culture itself, right? And then that doesn't really lead to the intended idea of we could somehow have this policy guiding citizens uh, of different backgrounds to have some kind of intercultural understanding. Once we have culture appropriated for consumption, um, forget about deeper, more meaningful understanding to build a, a stronger civil society. So I, I am critical of that. Yeah, I am. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm crit- critical of how culture can be consumed. Yet. <laughs> I say, Always a yet. There's always a yes, yes. I you notice that in my class, there's always yeah. a <laughs> yeah. Yet, um, you also give a chance for immigrants to really to build something, right? To have certain kind of economy, to, to pay the bills, to survive.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And then to to project some kind of possibilities in the future, especially for their children. Mm-hmm. Um, Lots of immigrants, they, they, they came to, that say, Canada or the States, uh, not necessarily because they are, you know, they were forced to leave or, for any other reasons. They might even have pretty good jobs, uh, mm-hmm. back in their, the so-called motherlands, I guess. Mm-hmm. At the same time, they, they, they left. Usually, uh, you, you ask them, they will always say, uh, I came because I want my, my, my children to have a better future. So for them they, they have certain hopes for their children. And and I think to to a certain extent all this sort of ethnic restaurants, however they appropriate culture even by immigrants themselves. It mm-hmm. a uh, a purpose, It it helped them to really to to build a sense of uh, uh, belonging to to the that's the the place they could claim who they are. They could mm-hmm. claim a certain kind of authenticity. Mm-hmm. So yeah. for me, I, I don't really want to say that. Well, it's totally bad because culture is appropriated for for this or that. But at the same time it's for certain kind of reasons that for, it's very, it's just very obvious, it's survival. It's
0: hard to really know where the line stands between borrowing ideas or like cultural appropriation nowadays. So could you give us like a definition of what cultural appropriation is? Because I am I feel like a lot of people are still so unsure what that is.
2: Uh, I don't really know that, either, but let me give it a try. Um, I'll give you an example. Uh, Trader Vic is one of the, uh, sort of uh tiki drinks or Polynesian drinks. I would say chain uh, restaurants, mm-hmm. uh, Trader Vic. So I follow their Facebook feeds because um you know, I was doing research on, on tiki drinks and Polynesian drinks. So last year I noticed they have this Drink, they serve it on a boat, a, a tiny little boat, right? Mm-hmm. So it's, it's sort of like an individual size of, I don't know, it's like, um, I would say 20 centimeter long. And the drink was, you know, it's in this boat. And then I look at the boat, I said, this looks awfully familiar to me. It ran a bell. So I, I searched on Google and it was the traditional fishing boat. Of an indigenous community on an island in Taiwan. So they actually totally just took that image and reproduced it without giving any recognition to the cultural and social significance of that particular fishing boats in, mm-hmm. in, to this uh, Taiwanese indigenous community.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: For me, that's a quintessential example of cultural appropriation, without recognizing where this place is from, you have to give recognition. It's not your pure vision. But for the consumers, it is a yet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the part is, uh, well, Trader is a corporation. So, but the the the, the thing is. For the consumers of Tiki drinks, it looks totally authentic. It looks totally exotic. And they would probably think it's it's tiki uh, it's a Trader Vic's creation based on their research in the Polynesian culture, which has nothing to do with Polynesia. But for, for the consumer who are convinced that could be authentic.
0: A thought just came to my mind, it's very interesting how a lot of the famous foods nowadays, or well-ish kind of, is like Japanese food. Do you want to eat Japanese food? Do you want to eat Chinese food? Do you want to eat Korean barbecue? But I've never really heard anyone say, hey, do you want to grab some indigenous food? And I think it really reveals something about the way that our society is treating different groups nowadays.
2: I think indigenous people, that their relations with the food is very different, you know. I mean, if you think about the traditional ways, mm-hmm. uh, it's very different from our relations with food. Uh, we had this guest lecture two weeks ago. Um, somebody mm-hmm. from the Sixth Nation, uh, Lynn Brand. I think she, she, she said that in her community, which is Mohawk community, 65% of food, they, they actually forage. Mm-hmm. They don't necessarily cultivate, right? Mm-hmm. They've brought a lot of food and then and then they the, the relations between humans and nature are profoundly different from our relations with nature and food. They look at maples, like oh, I think for us, if you walk on the street you couldn't even tell is this is this a sugar maple, or is, or is, or is this a silver maple or the Asian maples, they're all very different. So uh, we don't we don't really have the so-called indigenous restaurant. It pretty much also reflects um I'm not quite sure to to what extent the indigenous community is into sort of this market value of of mm-hmm. indigenous food.
0: Definitely. It seems very contrary to like their um their core beliefs about their relationships with food. So it's really revealing that they don't really have any markets for food.
2: Yeah, it's not really it's not a food that has been industrialized.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: You can't really, you know, sell something that you forage and you supply it on a constant basis. And sort of it's, it's a totally different ways of thinking about food. And how do you sort of sell it in the mainstream society? That sounds a bit like an oxymoron
0: to me. Well, all this talk about food, and, um, there's really one core concept that's been, um, apparent to me is that it's for this sense of belonging somewhere, right? And I feel like even when people have all these foods somehow without, like, the government actually kind of really caring for them and then and there's been all this stuff about um, Black Lives Matter, and recently there's also been an upsurge in like um, Asian hate, and so there's also been an Asian Lives Matter, I believe. Um, so how would we like fight against these injustices? How do we like use food in order to help people better feel like they belong in a place that kind of just feels like it's rejecting them so much?
2: That's such a big question. I guess Asians nowadays has been experiencing a lot of discrimination because of COVID. Um, I, I have been teaching a course on social change. So I've been asking the students this question that, you know, do, do you think that because of pandemic, so Asians experience more discrimination? Or it has been a structural issue and it simply got exacerbated. Mm-hmm. That's a proper question. So if you look at 1918, uh, the pandemic, the Spanish flu, a uh, 100 years ago, uh, racism was there as well against, mm-hmm. let's say, the Chinese people. And that's pretty much the beginning of Chinese hospital in Montreal. At mm-hmm. the very beginning, it was a kind of a clinic. Um, I think it's on like groucha And because other hospitals didn't take in Chinese patients. Oh. So the influenza itself was, man- I mean, the ra- racism itself was manifested that way. So, and now racism still exists, discrimination still exists, and ignorance still exists. Uh, it's just manifested in, uh, in a different way. Mm-hmm. So structurally, we have a social structure that embeds discrimination, that embeds mm-hmm. injustice. Somehow, it doesn't really change. It doesn't matter how much our technologies have changed. It doesn't really matter how, uh, how much sort of Material accumulation we had had in the past. Mm-hmm. Uh, this sort of fundamental structural issues is still there. It's still there. So how do we address them? I've always said that the very first thing is to raise the awareness, right? So mm-hmm. education is definitely one way to 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 get to understand things like that. And for lots of our students, they don't necessarily understand because it's not their personal experience. It's not their fault, right? They, were, they weren't they born into certain kind of social positions. But it, it is good for students to learn that, you know, somehow your privileges are probably built upon other people's misery. That's number one thing I, I would say, the second thing is really to understand injustice, not just an abstract concept, I often tell my students, you write something as like, you write about social justice. You don't, you know the name of social justice, but you don't really know the lived experience of social just injustice. Yeah. Right? So you know the name of something, but you don't really know something. You know something called injustice, but you don't really know what injustice really means in everyday life. I think that's a thing for younger generations, especially those who are more privileged. It, it is good to to understand that the more um, privileged, the more responsibility um, to address this. So have to develop certain kind of understanding beyond words, beyond abstract concepts, and try to understand, try to relate to understand that lived experience it be about food it could be about just everyday li- any kind of living situations it's usually one one way to understand it
0: yeah i definitely feel like in social justice movements there's always been like kind of divide between people with privilege never having experienced the actual discrimination themselves but they're the ones with the power, well, with more power and capability for change. And I think that's why it's so important to start like listening to other people, listening to these people who do have direct experience, and ask them what they need.
2: Storytelling, actually, narratives are very important. Learning uh, the experience through, you know, storytelling is one of the best ways to learn. And that's uh, one of the, I don't, I don't know any other ways, like to, if you don't have that live experience, but at least if you get to understand through storytelling, that uh, it's, it's a good start. And another way to do it is really, you pretty much have to roll up the sleeves and, and work on some cause, whatever cost you can pick, just pick Work on it, not just click like or, you know, send it through social media. It doesn't work that way. So in the food course, I've always encouraged my students. Now it's the pandemic, you can't really do much. But I've always encouraged my students, uh, you don't just learn from the classroom. You're going to go out to think about what you can contribute to, mm-hmm. uh, let's say, food security or, this, or food democracy. Uh, it could be something very local and very small. Nonetheless, I, I still believe that everything has to start mm-hmm. with something really small. It's like, if you grow a tomato tree or tomato plant, it starts with tiny little seed. Mm-hmm. We, we really need tiny little seeds here and there, and then we will harvest the fruit, the fruit of, of justice at one point. Yeah. I am not talking about justice, but I don't think there's other ways of making our society better.
0: Yeah, we just got to pick something and try to solve it from there. Because, I mean, all these issues are, like, interlinked with one another, right? Mm-hmm. Um, for example, I remember from the course we talked about, like, um, food deserts and how, like... um it was more likely that black people in the states would be living in a in a food desert compared to like um or well a black middle class or lower class person is more likely compared to like a white middle class person and it was very shockingly to like find that out so i guess we are coming to the end of our talk now so Mm -hmm. what is um a book or like a documentary, maybe even several, uh, that you would recommend for students to better understand wow. um the issues of multiculturalism, the experience of the immigrants, or the injustice surrounding food?
2: Huh. You know that that textbook is really good. I really like that textbook. Society. Uh-huh. It doesn't really feel like a textbook. It's very good for um, college and uh, undergrad students to to have sort of an entryway to understand food, especially Mm -hmm. the problem of food system. I don't know, multimedia resources. We watched quite a few documentaries. You know, that that black gold about coffee and global trade of coffee. That's, That's a very good one. Um all the documentary about genetic modified food is very good. Anything about Monsanto or against Monsanto is very good. This um documentary about Teflon, the frying pan Teflon, it's called The Devil We Know, that's also very good. Lisa Halke has a book on she's a philosopher. She talks about um exotic food. That's also very good. I can't quite remember the title, Lisa Halke. H-E-L-K-E. It's also a very good book to think about the way, you know, local ethnic food has been sold. So yeah, you guys, uh, if you're interested in food, you could do that. And you can also join Green Mary Project, you know, grow mm-hmm. some tomatoes on campus, roll up your sleeves and sweat and work. It's actually rewarding. Thank you, Professor. That was like such an interesting talk. And
0: like I hope everyone in the future will like also enjoy this talk about food and they'll change their perspective on the foods that they eat. Yeah, and I hope so.
1: Yes,
2: I think for this occasion, it's uh, it's been uh, it's been interesting.
0: Thank you everyone for tuning to listen. I hope you enjoy listening to this episode as much as we did during the interview. If you liked this episode, learned something, or just want to help out a bunch of students, please leave a review, write a comment, and share this on social media. If you are listening to this on YouTube, please subscribe and write to us in the comments. All the books and other resources recommended by the interviewee are in the podcast description slash video description depending on your platform, and depending on when you see this, you might be able to use our affiliate link to purchase them. The Marianopolis Addendum Podcast is actively seeking local sponsors here in Montreal, so if you are interested, please contact us at the email linked in the description. All the profit generated by this podcast will go back to fund our club's activity. If we have any surplus, they will be donated at the end of every month to a local charity. This episode was edited by Min, and the artwork is done by Camilla Huang. The producers and guests associated with this episode may express their opinion, but this podcast does not support any political parties. We only aim to bring different perspectives on different issues through the free exchange of opinions and ideas. We look forward to seeing you at our next broadcast. Cheers!